0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the 60s and 70s painted a mixed and controversial view of psychedelics, but their magic may lie in their potential to heal. New research indicates that MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly, could hold significant therapeutic potential.
1: These are the most powerful ways to interact with the human nervous system in a way that is psychologically meaningful.
0: And later, the renowned trauma specialist Bessel van der Kolk describes his experiences with MDMA clinical trials.
2: None of them have a picnic experience. They're all hard. Mm. They go to very difficult places, but somehow the drugs make it possible for them to tolerate feeling what they feel, feeling, and knowing what they know. At the end, uh, people have a feeling, yeah, that's what happened to me, and now I can go on with my life.
0: From a club drug to a promising trauma treatment, the astounding benefits of MDMA, all ahead on Life Examined. It may be safe to say that a new psychedelic revolution is upon us. Perhaps you've noticed an uptick in articles recently about promising clinical studies with drugs like MDMA and psilocybin. So why is this so significant, and how could it impact you? Well today, nearly one in five American adults lives with a mental disorder. That's about 51.5 million people in 2019. And PTSD will afflict an estimated 7.7 million Americans at some point in their lives. Now, imagine an effective treatment that replaces a daily dose of prescription drugs with just a few managed therapy sessions. This is exactly what Matthew Johnson is looking into with MDMA, among other drugs. He's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University and one of the world's most published scientists on the human effects of psychedelics. Johnson has spent years researching the extraordinary benefits of MDMA in controlled settings with hundreds of participants. Matthew Johnson, welcome to Life Examined. My pleasure. Talk to me a little bit about the history of MDMA or ecstasy. Where does it come from?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. MDMA was first synthesized by Merck in the very uh, early 20th century. So this is, it's not an ancient drug. As far as we know, it doesn't occur in in any plants or animals or, or fungi. But for a synthetic psychedelic type drug, it's actually one of the oldest ones. It wasn't known to be psychoactive back in 1912. Um, It was put on the shelf. It was just one of the uh, many compounds that pharmaceutical companies will develop um, through a pipeline and uh, on early various tests, sometimes in animal tests or other tests, uh, they don't see anything they find interesting, and so they'll shelve it. Mm. Uh, So fast forward quite a ways, it wasn't until Sasha Shulgin uh, was manipulating various structures of psychedelics um during his career he was a chemist that created dozens and dozens of novel psychedelic compounds someone brought to his attention this older uh, compound MDMA and this would have been in the in, in the 70s he resynthesized it and as far as we know this was the what brought uh our attention to the psychoactive properties of mdma and so he introduced it to a friend who was a psychedelic therapist in california and this was in the years after the other psychedelics primarily lsd had been outlawed and so that this whole these people who a decade uh, earlier had been conducting legal therapy with lsd and seeing incredible results that work was now illegal some of them continued that work underground or illegally. Others quit altogether, but MDMA, which of course hadn't been made illegal yet because it was this novel thing that wasn't known to be a psychedelic, these therapists were finding incredible potential for MDMA and uses therapy. And so that's where it took off uh, amongst hundreds of of psychotherapists, s- starting in California, but then spreading beyond that. Um, and then only a few years later, it became popular in, in the nightclub scene in Texas at a particular mm. nightclub uh, initially. And that's what in the early 80s um, sort of instigated the recognition of MDMA as more of a, a, a drug of abuse or one that's associated with nightlife or you know, partying, um, particularly a, a supplement to dancing.
0: Hmm, interesting. And then it
1: was sub- subsequently made illegal by the DEA.
0: So, what what are the properties of MDMA? When we look at this compound, wh- what is it doing in the brain that is that is so different and interesting to study?
1: Well, it's different than the so-called classic psychedelics like psilocybin, which is in magic mushrooms, and LSD, and and. DMT uh, and mescaline, those are all classic psychedelics and they work by activating a certain subtype of serotonin receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. MDMA is different in that it releases serotonin rather than mimicking uh, the effects of serotonin um, mimicking, but with a difference in effect uh, the other drugs do, but the MDMA just sort of like releases a, a profound amount of serotonin into the the synapses, the spaces in between neurons so that it can affect other neurons. And, and this is uh, – it does that not only with serotonin but to a degree with other neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and, and dopamine. And uh, for this reason, it actually has it, – its psychoactive properties are somewhat in between that of a classic psychedelic and one of a prototypical – psychomotor stimulant like amphetamine or methamphetamine. It's Mm. actually chemically a derivative of methamphetamine. It's methylene, dioxy, methamphetamine, but it's a compared to other psychedelics. People will typically describe it as being much more gentle. The propensity for a so-called bad trip is lower. The potential, it more reliably leads uh, one to a reaction of emotional openness uh, without sort of the reality the profound reality altering effects of other psychedelics, you're less likely to get for example, this sort of complete dissolution of the self this mm. this feeling of of merging into the the oneness of the universe that's more likely to happen with something like LSD or psilocybin with MDMA it's more of this very warm emotional tone with with increased reported insight into one's own feelings and motivation and 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 that's the source of the potential psychotherapeutic potential
0: hmm. There have been a lot of rumors about this drug for years. The one, the one I remember hearing as many others have perhaps, is that it burns holes in your brain and can have these really dangerous long-term impacts. Is any of that true?
1: So there's a kernel of truth, but the you know the way you just said it about the burning holes in the brain, that that's that is so far beyond, removed from the kernel of truth that mm. it's it's, it's complete hogwash. (laughs) Interesting story. Uh, the whole burn, uh, burning holes in your brain was really, that story really took off from Oprah Winfrey's show in the, uh, oh gosh, this might've been either late eighties or early nineties, but, um, really based on, uh, brain imaging where, There were so many problems with this research, but it resulted in the comparison of of individuals who had used a a bunch of times and those who had not sort of control participants Mm -hmm. and, and the supposed holes were really just a product of the gain on the machine uh, on the monitor. If you turn the dial to the right, you know, it's sort of like just messing with your, 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 the video settings, like the contrast and whatnot, a particular thing, the, the, the holes where you're not seeing um, activity are just a, a complete product of the, of the relative gain of, of the visu- visualization algorithm. But then there were also just some real problems with the, the, the research underlying those images from the first place. The kernel of truth is that in animals um, such as rats, uh, when you give a very high dose and give it repeatedly, it's very clear there is damage to the serotonin system, mm. long-term changes that are either very long-lasting and possibly permanent, uh, some evidence that there's some reversal, but also a, a chance for irreversible changes. In humans, it, there are some uh, changes in, in, in terms of serotonin receptor uh, Uh, availability and in some subtle cognitive functions. um, When you compare people who have used street MDMA, which is often not MDMA, but street so-called ecstasy, compare those to um, normal folks when people have used hundreds of times, it does look like there are some changes and that would be consistent with the animal data. So it Mm. is likely that at a certain dose and certain frequency, that there can be some some long-term changes to the serotonin system. But a huge caveat here is that we know that using using at night where one is going to be sleep deprived, using in a, a hot environment, using even independent of temperature in a crowded environment, all exacerbate that type of, of damage. On top of that, we know uh, data, including data that I have published um, based on... Um, P- pills of ecstasy that, with a surprisingly high uh, frequency, it's 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 often not MDMA, and even when it is MDMA, oftentimes there's other things in it, mm. such as methamphetamine and other uh, cathinone-based compounds, um, uh, many of which are are also known, sometimes with a stronger uh, base of evidence uh, to to have the potential to cause neuronal damage Mm. so there's a whole lot of caveats there i have absolutely and i don't think there's any scientific support for concern about this type of damage from the therapeutic models that are used when people are receiving these things two or three times in a therapeutic context you know, not staying up all night dancing. You know, with pure M- MDMA, I-, I think in terms of a risk benefit ratio, there's no question that this is a a, a very reasonable treatment, and those mm. aren't concerns.
0: Okay, so so like like a lot of things in life, extreme usage is going to have an impact on our how how the brain functions, and and of course the, the purity of the substance here plays a large role in the conversation as well. Um, so in the therapeutic context, I, I wonder if you can walk us a little bit through how these clinical trials have worked and and what they look like because what we're reading now and in, in a lot of places like the New York Times and all over is that the, the results are, are quite promising.
1: Yeah, so this works differently uh, than other psychiatric medications and the same model is essentially at play with psilocybin yeah. where I've, I've i've conducted dozens of studies with hundreds of participants and very it's basically the same model um, of, of so-called psychedelic therapy you know you screen people because there's certain contraindications uh, that you can readily screen out um, such as severe heart disease or susceptibility to disorders like schizophrenia um, after that people are prepared for the experience they meet with so-called guides or therapists that will be with them eventually when they do have the drug session, um, they build a therapeutic relationship of a, a, a huge part of this is, uh, coming to trust those people to be emotionally vulnerable with them, to really go on this inner journey with them as your, your shepherds and to, to trust, let go and be open with their presence, um, and so then, after this prep, these preparation meetings, which spend uh, a number of hours, then one is ready for their um, their session day. Um, and in the recent uh, MDMA work, folks have have likely read about um, for PTSD treatment. Um, they've used three sessions. So on each of these sessions, the person will come in, and they're going to spend the whole day there. They come in early in the morning, and they're. Um, you know, the drug effects are gonna last. You know, basically the, you know, a a work day, You know, mm. it's gonna start to wear off in the late afternoon. The person lays on a a, a couch or a comfortable looking bed. The, the environment is not one that looks like a, a a hospital room or a clinical setting. Even if there's a a small amount of medical equipment like blood pressure. Uh, equipment that's, you know, um, artfully, you know, kind of tucked away to not be prominent. The, 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 general vibe is, Hey, this is a comfortable living room, that type of thing. And, uh, the person wears eye shades. Um, so masks over their eyes and they wear headphones through which music is played during the experience. They're not playing DJ. The participant isn't the patient isn't, but so this is a pre um, uh, Playlist of, of of music to support the experience, and the whole point of this of laying down and wearing eye shades, listening to the music, is to create an inward experience. You know, to not really become too focused on the outside environment. It's really thought that you get the best from these psychedelic type compounds, the most therapeutic experience when really looks at themselves and not at the rest of the world. And so a good amount of the time is spent introspecting. And then a little more with MDMA compared to the um, classic psychedelics like psilocybin, a little more time is spent talking with the therapist through the treatment. So when trauma comes up and it reliably does so, when you have, when that's the context to treat PTSD trauma, the trauma will come up and the person will talk about it with the therapist who really provide supportive therapy, meaning they're they're they encourage the person to explore. They're not there to to, to judge or provide any easy explanations. Um they're here to support that person. Mm. Um if the person has any anxiety, they can address it by reassuring them that they're in a safe environment and they're not going to leave them alone and that they're going to stay with them. Mm. And then eventually the drug wears off and um there's discussion uh, about the experience um, after, um, a, a, you know, following the drug administration day, and the person really processes these things. It's, it's thought it's very consistent with our best, most advanced scientific understanding of trauma, and really just the general way that memory itself works. The idea that you access these traumatic memories, you you pull them out of long-term memory. And now you're experiencing them, you're thinking about them, you're contemplating them in a, a, a vastly different context. The drug has some really amazing uh, changes where, for example, it tamps down the, 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 the fight or flight response of the amygdala. There's an oxytocin uh, uh, response that, that might have some role in the effects that kind of increase those feelings of safety and, 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 and bonding with the therapist, so the signature of the drug effect is one that sort of creates a very different valence, and one that people often say that they just they have a, a, a much richer understanding of their own emotion and of, of, of themselves, and so often with trauma someone Will look at it through new lenses and have a a sense of self-love to pervade the those memories of like, oh my gosh, I I survived this and I didn't ask for this. This wasn't my fault. Mm. And to have a compassion for themselves, for having gone through that, you know. And and so the self-blame, panic, and 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 the hatred towards the world that could all pervade these experiences, that is radically changed. And that can be so so profoundly moving to people that those memories last. And we know that's consistent with the way memory works. That's prof- so profoundly insightful that people, when they store those memories, the memories themselves change. Mm-hmm. This kind of hair-trigger emotional panic reaction that normally was tied one-to-one with those memories is no longer there. Those feelings of self-love, and understanding and this kind of broader context are now what's tied to the experience they're not forgetting that ex- traumatic experience uh, but when that when they do think of it when, remember it now it has this completely different emotional tone so in short they learn from this experience They they radically reprocess they learn to have a completely different cognitive and emotional reaction to these memories mm. yeah
0: yeah I mean this is this is powerful stuff, and this is something I see doing doing therapy work is is that uh, people's relationship to trauma is 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 really really profoundly complex and often dark just as you said, most people think maybe it was my fault I was put in this situation. how did I let this happen to me and I think also there's oftentimes a very big shame component to trauma there's a few of how of how they'll be judged for having put been put in that situation or found themselves in that situation and so you know what you're talking about is 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 how we begin to relate to these pieces of our past in a new way how do we reframe them and I think as you said when you when you change the kind of the emotional overtone to aspects of our past it gives people a new way to view their future which is uh, you know is so powerful within that therapeutic lens. And the way you 're describing this kind of clinical setting reminds me of something like a shamanic journey, um, something that would have happened in indigenous cultures for thousands of years. so there is this this kind of natural parallel isn 't there
1: right you know these and, and and you know admittedly, there are many different models there 's many different indigenous societies that have used these sometimes they were only these compounds were only used by the the, the so-called shaman or or whichever you know kind of designated person but some at other times it, it was used in this sense to heal you know the shaman w- would give it to others to to heal them of of a variety of disorders sometimes you know ones that are you know sound like straight up you know medical disorders like they're some sort of infection for example so any number of things and things we wouldn't even recognize like you know the person, by their belief system, a spell has been cast on them, that type of thing. But there are many commonalities. Uh, one is that uh, whatever the kind of the metaphysical belief system that that pervades the the use, that this is something that should be taken extremely seriously. You could call that sacred. You could use other language in a modern clinical setting, but it's 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 about your your. The, those deepest most parts of of what a human is. Mm. And so this is taken extremely seriously. This is the furthest thing from uh, uh, partying one could possibly imagine.
0: This is what I think, I wonder if it works against the work you're doing, is the fact that MDMA was used as a club drug for so many years. Granted, some people thought they were having their own spiritual experience listening to house music, and I'm not even taking that away from them either. That could be true. But... But you're having to compete with this other version of what this drug was, and now you're saying, hold on a second, it can actually be very, very, it it can be taken very seriously, and the impacts can be beyond a fun night out.
1: Right, And, and one of the things that is the most common, particularly with MDMA... Because it does even more so than psilocybin has that reputation for being a dance. You know, you take it all night to dance. One of the things folks don't get is that these are amongst the the most difficult experiences of people's lives. It's routine, and this happens with psilocybin too. People will come out of these experiences and say, "My God!" Like people do this for fun. <laughs> like mm. you got, like they just don't get it. They they just don't. They're like that. That is insanity. And not that they're necessarily laying, laying judgment. They like they just literally don't understand. They're like they just went through the most soul wrenching experience of their life, and the idea of like taking this like just you know for giggles is just it doesn't make any sense in the world mm-hmm. because that's the only context they've had it in. Is this like deep inner journey, healing journey? And, and, and so the thing with the, you know, when they are used to party, sometimes people use them to party and they don't have much to say other than like, yeah, had a really great time. Other times people take these things to party, whether, you know, and then they move away from the dance floor and maybe they have a good friend with them and they sit down in, in the hallway and, and they put their head down and they start, they start saying, my God, and they start like going into something about their own life and, and just uh, this same psychotherapeutic process can even even in that non-optimal setting can sometimes happen and people have a profound healing experience even there you know other times because there's no controls or anything sometimes people are harmed Mm. and sometimes people are you know and sometimes people just have have fun but it's uh it's it's we really need to move away from we need to think about these as extremely powerful tools you know it's like the the knife that is used in surgery, to take out that tumor that can save someone's life um, who 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 has a cancerous tumor is you know basically the same thing as the knife that can stab someone in an alleyway. Mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. like same tool, you know, the effects are completely dependent on the context and the intentions for the use. These are the most powerful ways to interact with the human nervous system in a way that is psychologically meaningful to people in, in, a, in a just an intense fashion, acute fashion. Like there's really nothing that compares to it. Mm-hmm.
0: For years, treatment for things like PTSD, uh, as you mentioned, included uh, psychotherapy, maybe going on an SSRI, something like Prozac or, or there's a handful of other ones. And I know there are going to be people that are listening to this interview, they're going to may have read some of the literature in the New York Times or the work you're doing at Johns Hopkins, and they're going to say, well, how how soon will this work be integrated into psychotherapy work? When when can somebody begin to do this type of stuff? What, What are your thoughts on the on the future impacts of it in a more kind of mainstream clinical setting?
1: Yeah, I think with MDMA, we're probably only about three years or so away from it being approved and being able to use in treatment outside of the research setting. And with psilocybin, probably, you know, one or two more years, you know, it's a little bit behind, Uh, but yeah, four, five years, I, I think we're pretty close
0: meanwhile this is this is still an illegal drug right I mean this is this is right. something that could get you locked up
1: right so you know I don't encourage that you know anyone use this on their own there are absolutely risks including you know kind of like more basic risks as uh, of, of the drug effects themselves um, in addition to the fact that they're illegal <laughs> and that's a risk right. so yeah people should be very aware of that
0: mm-hmm Do you think that we'll just see this drug perhaps being rescheduled at some point on the federal level?
1: It really should. If MDMA is approved, it should be rescheduled. There is one possibility of it: the government instituting what's called a bifurcated schedule where they say, well, if it's illegal MDMA, then that's schedule one. But if it's Therapeutically approved MDMA, that's, you know, schedule, you know, three or something, or, you know, it would have to be, you know, at least in, down to schedule two to allow medical use. But I think that would, that really would only be a political compromise. Uh, it, it really does, if it's approved for medical use, it does not belong in schedule one. I mean, cocaine is not in schedule one, hmm. whether it's illegal or not, it's in schedule two. It doesn't mean cocaine's legal, it doesn't mean that people are encouraged to use cocaine. But it is used and like a lot of other drugs that are used in medicine that are scheduled, like many of the opioids, like Adderall, like a lot of the sleeping drugs and anti-anxiety drugs. they, you know, Many of them, all of the ones I listed are scheduled in Schedule 2, Schedule 3. I do think it should be brought out of Schedule 1 when it is approved as a medicine.
0: I've been speaking with Matthew Johnson, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. Um, th- thanks for the conversation today. We appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Still to come, a first-hand account of an MDMA session from preeminent trauma specialist Bessel van der Kolk. You might have heard of his acclaimed book, it's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Now we'd love to hear from you. Is the evidence compelling when it comes to psychedelics? Is it time for a paradigm shift in how we treat trauma? And would you be comfortable trying these new therapies? You can chime in on our Facebook group. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This is Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Stay
2: close. Introducing the KCRW donation car. Designed to be recycled.
0: We just heard from Matthew Johnson, Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University, talk about the profound psychological healing that can be achieved using MDMA. So just how has MDMA shifted the paradigm when it comes to the treatment of trauma? And could the medical legalization of psychedelics mean that ecstasy could be coming to a therapist near you in the coming years? Joining us to discuss the breakthroughs in treating trauma with MDMA is psychiatrist and researcher Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. Vanderkoek is author of the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma, and he's one of the world's leading experts in trauma. Dr. Vanderkoek, welcome to Life Examine. It's great to have you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Can you talk about how widespread trauma is, uh, not just in the U.S., but across the globe? I know this is such uh, an area you've been looking at. How common is it for people to say they've experienced some form of trauma?
2: You know, When we first defined this diagnosis, PTSD, we defined it as an event that's outside of the realm of normal human experience. Mm. And that shows you how completely ignorant we were. Uh, And we did not know at this point that one out of five women has been uh, sexually molested, that one out of every four kids gets hit very hard by their caregivers. Mm. Um, that one out of eight kids uh, witnesses domestic violence. Um, and recent calculation in the Journal of Pediatrics discovered that about half of all kids in North America, Asia, and South America witnessed trauma wow. before the age of 12. Um, it is extremely common.
0: Wow. I, those numbers, I, I, perhaps I've heard some of them before, but they're, they're absolutely shocking when you they're say that again. They're yeah, stunning. Yeah, they are.
2: been I mean, stunning that psychology and psychiatry keeps sort of labeling people as having these disorders, but generally uh, there's very little question about how did you get to be so weird? Mm. And people get to be so weird because they have to cope with horrendous stuff oftentimes. What do we
0: know about how trauma impacts people moving forward in their lives? What 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 have you what have you been looking at all these decades? But
2: basically, uh, you know, and this was already articulated over 100 years ago. Uh, t- trauma causes people to get stuck, mm. and so uh, your brain gets set to fear that you continue to be attacked. You sort of stay there and you continue to feel like I'm about to get hurt, I'm about to get raped, I'm about to get taken advantage of. And so your mind and your brain gets fixated on that moment, and it's very hard to take in new information. Mm -hmm. you see this in Vietnam, you know, it's interesting, I started working with Vietnam veterans, and they said, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with the Second World War veterans, uh, because they're all stuck in the Second World War. And 40 years later, the Vietnam veterans are now old men and they're still stuck in Vietnam. Ah. And so, and when you uh, have been sexually molested, your body may continue to feel as if you're a kid who's getting sexually molested, makes it, making it very difficult for you to have a loving, reciprocal relationship with, uh, with your partners. Uh, and so it's an issue of getting stuck. Mm-hmm. And so the question is really, how do you help people to get unstuck
0: yeah and for the example, let's say a Vietnam vets or World war two i mean is it the fear that i i even now in a in a safe environment, I'm at risk right now of being shot or attacked or a helicopter coming over my head so you're you're living yeah. in that state of fear is is it something yeah. like that you're living
2: in a space but it's not cognitive, and it's mm. I'm really actually astounded how people have to pay psychologists to tell them how irrational their thinking is. They probably know pretty much how irrational their thinking is and they feel ashamed about feeling that way, but they do. It is not a conscious decision that they make or um, a function of that they're not alert or aware. It is just the way that the part of your brain that's in charge of what Antonio Damasio calls the housekeeping of the body Mm. continues to uh, react to stuff as if you're in danger yeah
0: why did you get so interested in studying trauma
2: wouldn't you when when you hear me talk about (laughs) but this is incredibly interesting you know it's a gigantic topic and when you do it right you see people get better and you know um, I'm a neuroscientist and incredibly interesting what happens in the brain and what happens in development and also to really explore how you can get people uh, to re- get re-involved in life, of course. Like, yeah. Can, can you think of anything more interesting to do? I'll do it if you find something. <laughs> okay, I'll let you know. <laughs> For me, it's like, you know, what, what else do you want to do? Yeah.
0: Uh, but but I take it there must have been something in you or or in your past or in some of your early studies that, that really caught your attention.
2: As my f- friend, the attachment researcher, Beatrice Beebe says, all research is me-search. Huh. But, you know, um, I'm one of of five siblings, and I'm the only one of my siblings who has any interest in the subject. So, uh-huh. um, you know, it, it comes with temperament and experiences and what grabs your attention. And then what, what gets reinforced, you know, so it became a terrific uh, expo- exploration for me.
0: Yeah what happens when when you see trauma show up say on a brain scan or an fmri this is this is something you uh, have noticed and seen like what how do how do we see trauma literally show up in the brain
2: well first of all you see sh- you see trauma show up in reality huh? mm, sure and uh, brain scans don't take the place of reality because brain scans are still very primitive and cannot capture all the complexities. Um, So how does trauma show up? Is that people have inappropriate responses to current situations. They suddenly get very angry, or very frightened, or very shut down in response to what other people say. What's wrong with you? Uh, So you have these automatic reactions. And that's reflected in the brain, that certain areas of the brain, um, like the amygdala and the periaqueductal gray, are constantly Pumping out information saying you're in danger, you're in danger. Uh, your insula, the part of your brain that connects with your body, feels all these sensations of heartbreak and, and gut wrench that are the sensations that go with feeling extremely frightened. And so you see abnormalities in that registration of body experience. And then you see people slowly learning to shut down that part of their brain so they no longer feel those things Mm. and you no longer feel your body sensations. You no longer feel pleasure because the same things that make you feel pain also make you feel pleasure. So if you learn to shut down your pain, you also learn how to shut down your access to life.
0: Makes me think of how how people have self-medicated for years as a way to try and just, if nothing else, dull some of those hard feelings.
2: Absolutely. That is... There's always been a, since time immemorial now, I had a classical education, so uh, Homer wrote continuously about these soldiers drinking and re-experiencing, you know, this has been observed for millennia. And, uh, you know, the army has always survived on people taking drugs Mm. to sustain them through war type situations, yeah.
0: What about how... How trauma shows up on the somatic level. I mean, I, I think, for example, of of your book, the body keeps the score. I mean, that that
2: title in and of yeah. itself is interesting. Where does it show up in the body? It shows up that that that, that part of your brain that's in charge of helping you to meet challenges mm. uh, is a part of the brain that secretes hormones that allow your gastrointestinal system to be ready for attack and your cardiac system and your Immunological system. So, the the system that basically holds the trauma has effects that go up towards your front of the brain, cause you all these behaviors and feelings, but goes down into your body. And in fact, uh, if you really are a real ser- researcher in this area, you discover sooner or later that the somatic effects are even larger than the mental effects. Mm. Or that even when people have relatively good mental functioning. The somatic effects of your body reacting like it's in danger, having abnormal immunological functioning, uh, having abnormal gastrointestinal functioning is extraordinarily common.
0: How have treatments for trauma changed in the last 30 years or so? I'm curious what you've seen.
2: You know, 30 years ago, we knew nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no treatment. And what I like to say to people is that we're still very much in a uh, state of of discovery. And anybody who says, I have found the answer should not be trusted. Mm -hmm. But certain very important treatment issues came in. For me, the first one was something called EMDR. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And I learned so much from EMDR. I got the first grant to study that actually from the National Institute of Health. And we had very, very good results. And what for me was interesting is that the method is a very strange method. Uh, you recall your trauma, you don't talk about it, but you move your eyes from side to side, and we see these amazing changes. And so what what that helped me to do is to understand that the paradigm, the Western paradigm, is that talking about how bad you feel and taking drugs may not be sufficient. Hmm. And so uh just about any anything that I've studied uh, was most people reacted to that's weird. I so the first thing I studied was EMDR. don't mm. so had very good results. Second thing, second thing I studied was yoga. Mm. you know putting your butt in the air, and twisting your body in a pestle treatment for PTSD. people said he's gone off the deep end, and it turned out that yoga was a more effective treatment for trauma than any drug that people had discovered. Mm. Um, and so that it goes into really needing to be in touch with your body and taking care of your body is a very important part of overcoming trauma. Um, and the next thing I studied, studied many different things. It was like neurofeedback. Mm. And that is actually, we can harvest our brain waves by putting electrodes on a skull, project them in a computer screen and you can play computer games with your own brainwaves to regulate your own brainwaves and to get more focused and attentive. Uh, that was a major uh, advance, which yeah. I'm still working on. Yeah. And then the most recent thing is that um, there's an explosion of uh, research in psychedelics that I'm a very active part of. Yeah, uh, And we find the psychedelics can be extraordinarily
0: effective. Yeah, this is is what I'd like to spend some time on, that you've been a principal investigator into this is a a rigorous 15-site phase three uh, clinical trial into MDMA, which, which we're talking about on the program today. and and part of your participation in this was understanding how the treatment would work. Um, And so you yourself underwent um, a a, a treatment or a session or more of MDMA, and and I was wondering if you could talk about your experience doing that.
2: I had the experience, Mm. and uh, I anticipated that the experience would be uh, pleasant and I'd see little parts of heaven and and wonderful stuff, and uh, I was sorely disappointed. Uh, Something happened to me that had happened to a friend of mine. He used to be the commissioner of child services in Massachusetts. He did an ayahuasca experience. He said, while I was doing ayahuasca, all the traumatized kids in the world came to visit me. Hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that must have been horrible. And he said it was, but at the end, I was a much wiser person. And lo and behold, when I took MDMA, I had a very similar experience. And people had oftentimes asked me, what is it like to treat all the trauma as people? And I had minimized, I said, oh, you know, I have a lot of social support, a lot of colleagues, a lot of friends, it doesn't bother me. And as I was getting my MDMA, all the trauma stories and the trauma experiences I had taken in came back. And it was very, very rough experience Mm. to really get in touch with all the trauma that had lodged itself in me because of the work that I'd done. uh, But at the end, I said, okay, that's what I've done with my life. I have voluntarily taken in all that trauma. And it really had a very profound effect on my self-compassion and my compassion for other people about how painful it is to feel and experience all that trauma. Mm. And that's very much... The experience of the people who are the participants in the study—none uh, of them have a, a picnic experience. They're all hard. Mm. They go to very difficult places, but somehow the drugs made it, make it possible for them to tolerate feeling what they feel, feeling and knowing what they know. And at the end, uh, people have a feeling: "Yeah, that's what happened to me," and now. I can go on with my life. There is something about the experience that allows you to fully countenance and face and absorb, yes, this is my experience, but it's over.
0: Mm. Would you say in many ways you get to re-experience it with, with more love, with more compassion, with a different understanding of the memory?
2: You know, it's all deeper than that. It's in such a deep hidden part of the brain. Okay that there is almost no cognitive element to it. Hmm. And uh, that's part of what I'm so happy about because our neuroscience has shown that the trauma really is stored in areas of the brain that your conscious self can really not access very well. And so all this stuff about let's do cognitive therapy and not have irrational thoughts, to me is just puzzling because that's not how it goes. Uh, we have these impressions and these sensations despite ourselves and see so, so we go in a very deep part of the brain that allows us to really reorganize what happened back then hmm. but the issue of self-compassion clearly is a very important element of the transformative effects of these drugs
0: yeah, yeah. well th- this question of reorganization i know i know we're kind of now in some very deep level of our consciousness but can you try and articulate that any more of, of what it means to reorganize a traumatic experience?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, we, we, have, we all have experiences in our lives. And we have them, and then it's over. And mm-hmm. you say, oh, last year I went sailing in Greece, and it was great. But you don't have flashbacks to, to it. You know, mm-hmm. It just happens, and it's an experience that you had, and you're glad that you had it. And uh, that's how most of our experiences are. They happen and then they disappear into your overall soup of your consciousness. So trauma is different in that trauma lodges itself as Freud ever actually cleverly put it back in 1893. He said, it's like a splinter of the in the mind. It's a little piece that just sits there mm. and is infected. And I think that's a very good description about trauma. And what the MDMA seems to do it allows your mind to, to take care of that splinter, to, to, to expel the splinter and say, yes, this happened to me. So uh, when you have been traumatized, you try very hard to not feel the feelings of having been raped or having been whatever. Uh, uh, and so you push it away and these, these drugs allow you to go there and to go like, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what happened. But it happens not today. It belongs to the past. So there is something in our minds that allow us to put it in perspective. Hmm. Would you call
0: this all uh, at all spiritual or something more ecstatic or spiritual?
2: Universal reaction uh, was already written about uh, in the old LSD cases is that when you have these experiences, you get to appreciate the unity of a larger universe that... Uh, that you're part of. Right. That's pretty much a universal experience of everybody who takes these ages, start feeling, I'm just a little part of a much larger whole. Mm -hmm. And you get a deeper appreciation of how complex and mysterious it is, and that you fit in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the spiritual dimension for many people becomes a very, becomes a very important dimension. But when you're traumatized, it's very hard to be spiritual. Because when you're traumatized, you're frightened or frozen and it's very hard for you to really feel justice or love in the universe because your experience your personal deep visceral experience is not of love and generosity.
0: It was interesting for me to hear about your experience as somebody much like a therapist or a counselor or could be anybody that that maybe themselves hadn't been exposed to the direct trauma but you have been Listening and taking in the stories of trauma, almost like secondhand, for
2: years and years and years. Yeah, and it's also secondhand when you sit with people mm. who are reliving their trauma. It's a very, you know, you really your mirror neuron system picks up all the pain and the yeah. And the yeah,
0: but, but it made me think that this type of a treatment could be so helpful for those like a caretaker or people that are working very close to death or doctors or people you know that, that are so close to the suffering, even if it's not directly happening to them.
2: That's, a, that's an excellent point. You know, I'm starting another program here at the local hospital. Actually, it happens to be neurofeedback uh, that helps people to regulate their brains. And uh, the head of the hospital said, it's very nice that you want to give it to traumatized kids. But the people who really need it is our staff in the hospital who have been taking care of all these people who died of COVID, and our own staff is very traumatized. And the first people I want you to take care of is our own staff. Yeah. And I said yeah, you are absolutely right. Hmm. And I think if if therapists get this experience, I think they will be. Uh, it will help them with their compassion and with their uh, openness to really tolerate all the stuff that they're dealing with and to be more open-minded and generous, yeah.
0: As someone who studied all these different treatments from EMDR to different forms of psychotherapy over, over the generations, do, do you think that potentially MDMA or other psychedelic therapy could be the most effective treatment for PTSD?
2: No, that is not what I would say. Uh, I, I know a number of very good treatments And, you know, PTSD is just a list of symptoms. Mm. No, I'm not a fan of the DSM, even though I've been heavily involved in it. Um, Psychiatric diagnoses are not really scientific diagnoses. And different different people are benefited from different methods. And I would not say, oh, we have found a treatment of choice. Mm. No, we have found a treatment for people who are stuck in the past who have a fairly decent level of functioning. If you're if you're too disorganized because of your trauma, I would not dare to give these very powerful agents to you. Uh, I would do other things first to stabilize you. And so uh, I think anybody who is a real trauma therapist needs to know a variety of different techniques. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I wonder if there's any, any kind of last ideas you'd leave us with when we think about the future of treatment in post-traumatic stress disorder, perhaps of kind of all the years of work that you've done that we haven't touched
2: on. I think a, a big issue is that, it happens in our study also, is that people talk about what was the trauma. Mm. And, and for many people, the trauma is their relationships, being an unwanted child, being used by people for their violent or sexual impulses it's not a particular event it's the way that you uh, your experience, early experiences shaped who you are as your identity and it's not about a particular event it's about how you experience the world and how you experience yourself as a result of how you have been treated and how what people have how people have uh, Used you in a way. And so what MDMA is particularly helpful for is to help people to get a very new perspective on who they are. And the other thing that for me is very important is that these things are located in the body and the way you experience yourself and how when you get traumatized, uh, people oftentimes do terrible things to their bodies. Uh, they take drugs, they have sex, unprotected sex with strangers. Uh, they do very dangerous things. Because once you're a trauma test, you have often a very deep um, contempt for who you are. And I think the issue of uh, learning to live in a body and to have compassion for yourself and to care for yourself is a terribly important aspect of trauma healing. And I do think that MDMA can help with that. But a few sessions, probably doesn't totally do the transformation that you need to become a true, truly, somatically embodied, self-caring person. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Bessel van der Kolk, thank you so much for, for sharing some thoughts with us on Life Examined. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Bessel van der Kolk is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. He's one of the world's leading experts in trauma. Our producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find this show and hundreds of others in our archives at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. We also have some interesting stuff in there about psilocybin, which we'll all be hearing about more and more as clinical trials continue, as well as dozens of shows on mental health, so we hope you'll check those out. As always, we love hearing from you and wonder how this material is sitting with you. How likely would you be to try these new therapies? Do they seem safe? Are they ready to go mainstream? Please chime in on our Facebook group. You can find a link at KCRW.org slash Life Examined or by searching in KCRW for Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you again soon. Take care.